0: Hello and welcome to Parents Just Don't Understand, a podcast about children's media, parenting, and the nature of childhood. Tonight, we're finally getting around to talking about something that's been, frankly, a long time coming because it's played a big role in both my own uh, childhood and adulthood, Uh, and that is anime, and more specifically, uh, something that's a major fixture in our own kind of regularly watched list, which is the works of Studio Ghibli in general and Hayao Maizaki in particular. So to make sure we you know, engage with this topic properly, we're going to be joined by something of an expert tonight, and that is Emma Bowers, the anime correspondent for the podcast Circle Session. So I'm super excited uh, to have an expert in the room. So uh, Emma, welcome to the show.
1: Welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Totally. Um, so before we get to the actual uh, media, which I should say, we're, we're going to talk uh, kind of, I think, a little bit about Miyazaki in general, I'm sure, but also in particular, uh, the two films we're going to be discussing in depth are My Neighbor Totoro And Princess Mononoke, which I know some people prefer to call Mononoke Hime, I believe uh, would be the pronunciation. But uh, before we get to that, um, I know that you yourself do uh, some work with uh, children outside of the podcasting world. So I wanted to to ask you a little bit about that. Yes,
1: yes. So um, when I was 22, I got a very weird job. I ended up uh, taking reptiles to kids birthday parties. So I don't know if you're either familiar with this as a parent, or if it's something you remember from your childhood. But it's that one, someone shows up, they got like a big box full of like, you know, like snakes and lizards and stuff. And I did that for like five years. And I will very honestly say this. um, <laughs> I... I don't want to say I hated kids or I didn't like kids, but I had had no experience of kids prior. Um, I'm an older child; my younger sister was two and a half years older than me. Um, didn't have any like cousins. Didn't babysit. Uh, so this was my first like introduction with working with and kind of essentially wrangling and handling children. And in that five years, I really ended up just sort of getting to be like good with kids. <laughs> I don't even know at that mm-hmm. time I could say I like kids, but I <laughs> ended up kind of um, just being good with them, how to communicate things with them. And I got really into it. I ended up reading this book called Unconditional Parenting, which I really liked because the things I was struggling with were um, Working at that job, and then in another job I took around that time, which was just working after school programs, was you have um, about an hour a week, and that is not enough time as an adult to establish yourself as what they would call a non parental authoritarian figure. And I was just really trying to find ways to essentially kind of I don't want to say control children because that's something I really don't like saying, like especially, but just, <laughs> just getting it's kind, of fair. it's kind of fair. A, Maintaining, I guess, a sense of routine and decorum and, I guess, respect um, from children who are still learning and developing all these things. And I ended up really liking the book because the whole philosophy was, and they quote this a lot in the book, um, work with as opposed to doing to. And essentially, that does mean gasp, you know, compromising and trying to reason with a child, which you'll get people who are like, oh, you can't do that, you know. Um, But that's just how I learned because me, I, I don't like anything else trying to yell or control or threaten like it just Mm -hmm. I didn't like how it felt and it wasn't getting reactions that I'd hoped for and this sort of actually you know trying to work with kids turned out to be really good and it's a philosophy I took with me far 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 after like leaving those jobs and in that time frame I've done more kids birthday parties more after school programs I work briefly at a children's museum and um now currently I work um at a zoo which you know is essentially full of children
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. um yeah and i think throughout all that and i got told this by my supervisor he was like you're very good with kids and i was like i don't know about that he's like no like and he doesn't bullshit he's like you are you're very good with
0: kids <laughs> and
1: i have no idea how that happened <laughs>
0: So, oh man, that's a lot. That's a lot to take into. <laughs> not, <laughs> not even not even really planned as the topic of the episode. Yeah. How did so so? What, that that first job where you were the person who shows up with a box of animals? Which it's I don't know that we I've ever encountered that personally, but it makes sense that that exists. It's like. It's, it seems like one of those things where you you get the sense as soon as you hear the idea that like oh yeah that's totally a thing that exists that makes perfect sense. Um, it was, <laughs> was it like through like through, through a company or did you just like go and get some animals?
1: <laughs> no, I, that's a great question. Yes, I, I worked for a small business tyrant. Um, it was just. Uh, <laughs> I'll run business, you know, um, down in um, down in South Bay and, you know, California I had, um, you know, they were like older, they were kind of racist. They had like two adult <laughs> daughters who were sort of by proxy kind of running the business. Um, and literally like my interview was, I sat down, he like told me all these, like, you know, racist stereotypes. And then he was like, do you have a car? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, can you start? And I was like, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was like 22. I was like, I need a job and I do like animals. Um, yeah. And I would just drive down there. I would pack up everything. I would, you know, go to all the parties I was supposed to go to. And then at the end of the week, like I got a uh, 1099 uh, paycheck, which is actually incredibly illegal when you think about it, because uh, those are not my animals <laughs> I am working for a company. But, but, you know, that's, that's what it was. <laughs>
0: I, I really liked what you said about um, reasoning or, or trying to get get kids to understand something and alter their behavior without necessarily trying to control them or tell them what to do. Because, um, yeah, there's a, there's a certain uh, like art of I almost think of it like in uh, Indiana Jones, when you take the golden idol off of the platform, you have to you know, <laughs> replace it with another thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, because kids are so sensitive to that, like that sense of like, I missed out on something like uh, just this this literally just happened yesterday. Um, so, you know, yesterday was was a voting day. Um, and we had been telling our older daughter that she would go um, with my, my partner to to vote, which we had described as uh, you're going to go and, and, and push buttons with with mommy. Um, And so she'd been thinking about this because now she's old enough to like hold a thought in her head for more than a day, which is terrifying. Um, (laughs) And then through a a variety of uh, contrived uh, events, including like our our younger daughter being sick and just kind of being rushed with things. um, My partner wound up going to to vote uh, by herself. Um, So when I went to pick up our our daughter, she goes, "Okay, I want to go push buttons uh, with mommy and I'm like oh no oh, oh boy, like and there's no way like you can't vote twice you can't vote twice like <laughs> you can't even like there's no way that I I was like what are I where can I find a button where can I find a replacement button and we were going to the doctor's um later that evening and I said oh man there is like there's like the handicap accessible automatic door opener button, and I was like, "Oh wait, you know, if we when we get right at the doctor's office, there's gonna be a button there that we can push." She's like, oh, "Okay, cool," and like that was that that was the thing was like she just wanted to push a button with one of her parents, and it, and it was fine. Like she, she doesn't understand what voting is, but it like if I had tried to be like, "Well, you know, life is difficult, and you know Denise had to go vote without you," she would have just gone, "Ah," you know, like it, she you wouldn't have understood logic, but the, rep- the logic of replacement, like we well, can't push that button, but you can push this different button. That was totally fine.
1: Oh, definitely. And I, I get that. I remember as a child, um, it, I was like, I must have been like your kid's age. I was four and we had an earthquake in the house. So, of course, as parents, you want the survival of your offspring. So my parents in a hurry, like, picked me up and ran out of the house. And I was furious because we had had earthquake drills. And I knew in an earthquake, I got to go and I was supposed to leave the house. And I was so enraged that I didn't get to leave the house. <laughs> By myself, and my parents are trying to be like, "Well, we can pretend again." I was like, "No," because I knew it was bullshit. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, really kudos for start? you for yeah. So I mean, kudos for you for finding a good compromise like that.
0: <laughs> I, I I mean, I had like thirty seconds of total panic. Like, where am I going to find a button? I, I was like, "Can it, could I go to the hardware store and just buy like a doorbell and get it up <laughs> here's, here's a button, but. um <laughs> Man, we could—that's super cool—and I'm, you know, I I feel like we could talk endlessly about that. But I'm I'm super jazzed uh, to talk about Miyazaki. Um, So uh, we always like to start off these media episodes by kind of asking about, you know, people's uh, own engagement with the 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 media if they had one um, when when they were kids. And I, since this is really the first one that we've gone in depth on on anime at all. I I, kind of wanted to go like really broad and say like did did you watch anime as a kid like how did you get into to anime in general was that a part of your childhood or something that you didn't get into until later
1: Yeah, that's an awesome question. The answer is um, I'm old, so the things I think a lot of um, people will say they remember as a childhood is there anime introductions like Pokemon and Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball, like all this shit was coming out when I was like leaving my childhood. This was all kind of popping up when I was like 13 or 14, you know? So I never had a, oh, I, you know, like I was a wee child and then me and my mama went to the park and Pokemon hunted or whatever. Like, (laughs) um, it's something I didn't get into until I was older. And it was, um, it, kind of the thing I think a lot of people in my generation kind of got into anime with is um, you went to the blockbuster and there were these mm-hmm. cartoons and they were kind of weird and they had, you know, blood and boobies in them, you know? And um, it was actually my dad who got me into anime. He, uh, he rented this OVA original video animation um, called Eria and we watched it together. And then um then I think, I'm trying to think what else we watch next. Like, I don't know. I'm looking back. I'm like, why did my dad have me watch that stuff? We watched like Armitage the Third, Evangelion, yes. like stuff you probably, yeah, but stuff you probably shouldn't be watching if you're a kid. But also like, my dad got me into Robert Heinlein. So uh, that's a whole jar of worms right
0: there. <laughs> so <laughs> um, my story is actually really similar. And I, I, I apologize to jumping in, but you mentioned Armitage and, and also like going to like the blockbuster. And my, my, mine is actually almost identical. I can tell you what my, uh my three first ones were that I saw, and I, I'm, I'm also old, um, were uh, Akira, uh, which is a hell of a first anime to see when you're like, I think I was probably like 11 or 12. Um, Yurisai Yatsura, uh, Beautiful yes. Dreamer. Um, and then the yes, I love Beautiful one, Dreamer. It's uh, I totally should rewatch it because I didn't get it at all. I was like, "What the hell is this?" Um, and then the third mm-hmm. one was uh, Dominion Tank Police, which, which I remember thinking, like, "This is awesome! This is amazing! This is so cool!" But mm-hmm. yes, yeah, very similar story. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, and then I think at that point I just had sort of gotten into anime and I started checking out kind of um, stuff I think more kind of for my demographic like teen girls. So I watched uh, Slayers which um, I still am very fond of. Fushigi Yugi, which is actually like, I'm like, oh, this was so bad and we all mm-hmm. watched it. Um, You're say It's a Beautiful Dreamer was one of my favorites and I watched it when I was probably 15 or 16 and a lot of that anime is kind of philosophical. Like, how do we know what reality is? And I was like, yeah, this Deep, you know, um, yeah, and it just it just escalated from there, and I've just been a terrible weeb ever since. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's um, I definitely have very strong memories of um, it, there, there was that era which you know people who are younger probably don't remember where like anime was not widely available, and you just kind of had to like stumble into things. I remember going to like the comic book store. And they would just have, like, a big wall of VHSs. And it was some combination of, like, weird sci-fi films and horror films. And then they'd have, like, a bunch of shelves of anime. And then a bunch of shelves of, like, the adult anime that were all, like, like behind, like, a piece of black plastic or something. But <laughs> um, I, I definitely remember buying, like, anime VHS cassettes. Not even in order. Like, I, I, I definitely remember I bought um like two vhs's worth of slayers next and they weren't the first two it was like at like three and five (laughs) or something so like totally (laughs) not able to follow the plot and you would just kind of stumble upon these things and i remember um sci-fi channel used to do saturday morning anime which is where i saw uh armitage the third and a a few a few other weird things that i don't even remember the, the the names of but yeah totally not like most of it was not kid appropriate, but it was, you know, it was cartoons. Uh, the, another thing, I, I you know, I, and I guess it counts, is like I totally used to watch like Speed Racer a lot. And like that kind of fits into that mold, even though it's not really considered that, I guess. But I, I think I think a lot of people around our age would probably remember that as well. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I hear um I hear Robotech a lot, which I didn't watch, but um <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of like, oh, I remember watching Robotech, which you know is a hodgepodge of a bunch of other anime's yeah. that were thrown together and you know tossed over to the US.
0: So, um the the thing that got me like to really seriously think about anime is like, oh, this is like a like a separate thing from the cartoons that I'm used to watching uh Was uh, Princess Mononoke, and I think a lot of people around our age, you know, that was one of the first like big, wide releases of an anime feature that had like you know celebrity voices, and that was why I was so excited to to talk about that one. So I guess advancing the topic a little bit, like Mm -hmm. how how did you start seeing you know Miyazaki, and I I know that you you mentioned that you specifically uh, that. Mononoke is your your favorite of the Studio Ghibli films. Like, how did you come into into that? What was your first experience there?
1: Um, Princess Monoke was actually my first Miyazaki film. And after that, I was kind of like, oh, I should actually, you know, watch the rest of these, you know. So I ended up, you know, watching um, you know, like Kiki's Delivery Service, my neighbor Totoro. But um, yeah, Prince Monoke was the first one I watched. Um, that one came out in theaters, which um nowadays like stuff in theaters is like it's a lot more common. Um, my partner went and saw um Promare I'm not gonna Promare, Promare the, the one from from mm-hmm. um, Trigger Studios at the sexy firefighter people. Um, And, you know, and this is uh, we're in Atlanta currently, you know, which I mean, has some movie stuff, but um, you know but I, that one like aired all over the place and that's in theaters now um, same thing he went and saw the One Punch movies not One Punch <laughs> One Piece movies that came out like things I mean we, we saw the Broly movie Um, you know earlier this year Um, like it's, it's more common for there to be stuff in theaters and you know decently sized cities but um, back then like this was uh, I grew up in Albuquerque New Mexico and it was I think the first time like I was familiar with like an animation showing up in theaters and I remember this and I always talk about this whenever this comes up my my anime origin story is you know I went in the theater and we're all watching it and there's that fight in the beginning where um you know um Ashitaka you know kills the 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 the, the boar god mm-hmm. and you know and it's kind of violent but it's violent in the way like um you know Belle gets attacked by wolves in Beauty and the Beast it's like scary but you know it's still animated and very theatrical and we're watching it. And then he gets gets exiled from the village. And he comes across these bandits. And some guy just gets decapitated. Yes. <laughs> and the entire theater cracked up. Like, the entire theater cracked up. And it's not meant to be a funny scene. It's clearly meant to be shocking. But I think for this audience where you know your your cartoons at that time were either like you know disney or like i guess the simpsons it was just so weird to see cartoon violence and i think in the west it was just like oh animation violence equals funny like this is supposed to be funny and i'll never forget that the theater just like laughing you know out of what is supposed to be a very serious scene
0: that's amazing. Um, I, you know, I, it's funny because that was that specific shot. I know exactly. I could picture it perfectly in my head. Um, and there's there's another shot very shortly afterwards where uh, Ashitaka shoots um, both of somebody's arms off. Yes, and, they and get they like get pinned pinned stuck to, the to a tree. tree. <laughs> um, and you know, I can understand almost why it would come across as humorous because. And this is something I was going to, to talk about later, but it's you, you mentioned it, so it's it's Jermaine to talk about now is um like it's weirdly compared to to even like the violence that i would expect to see in anime it's not it's not animated the same way like it's not like a like a ninja scroll type blood geyser it's just like the head just kind of goes boop it just kind of pops off and likewise the arms just kind of like come off almost like an action figure being taken apart it's not Like there's not that blood violent spectacle that you you I feel like people now expect to see from anime, so I can kind of understand like not having the context why that would be funny just as like a visual image itself.
1: It's very like itchy and scratchy, (laughs) yeah. Like 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 you know like all the limbs fall apart like you
0: know. (laughs) So the the first one that I really wanted to talk about uh, was My Neighbor Totoro. And the reason is um, both because I think this was like the first one that really put uh, Miyazaki on like the Western map. uh, But then also this is something that has a great like personal resonance for me because strangely, I did not see this film until I had kids. And I was like, I don't want to watch any more of these Disney films. Um, Our kid is young enough that we can just kind of show her stuff and she'll watch it. And I was like, I know this is supposed to be like a wonderful children's movie. So um, we'll watch it. And I put it on and it immediately entered like the regular rotation. So I've probably seen my neighbor Totoro. um, I would say upwards of a hundred times. I could probably like write out a like, like a, like a shot by shot, like outline of it um and uh it's a very interesting movie in a lot of ways uh so let's let's talk about that first
1: <laughs> um i i guess i love it because you you know this as a parent kid stuff is Loud. It's loud. It's mm-hmm. sensory overload. Everyone has like a really wacky voice. Um, you know, it makes like weird references, to, like, I don't know, Kill Bill or something. So you as the parent don't like go off and commit ritual suicide the hundredth time you have to watch it. You're like, haha, I know that reference, you know. Um, and Totoro, I feel, is just so comparatively quiet you know like it's very whimsical and it's beautiful mm-hmm. but um there's almost i'd say a tranquility to watching totoro that um you you don't get in the the, the 50th you know i don't know god everyone makes stuff uh, on a sky entertainment and it's it's a you know pitbull and he's voiced by john cena and they all do a, a, a dance at the end or i don't know like you know um yes. and totoro comparatively is just pretty and tranquil and it's just like engrossing and I I love Totoro for that it's just like you know like I want to like kiss it on the forehead and say like thank you You
0: yeah it's such a it's such a uniquely um kid entertainment and like in a lot of ways I think a lot of the movies that you're you're referencing like like does that one sing the various Disney films the various DreamWorks films I feel like those are not purely kid entertainments those are family entertainment as you say there's there's meant to be something for you know a little bit for each each member of the family so there's stuff that kids totally aren't going to understand there's just these goofy like pure spectacle moments um and my neighbor totoro is not that it's a it's an almost like it's a borderline non-linear narrative that's just kind of like a sequence of events there's moments of like Sadness and peril, but not in a, that don't fit into any kind of like traditional, easily stereotyped model of a children's film. Um, So I I guess, I guess for listeners who haven't seen My Neighbor Totoro, it it behooves us to give like a very brief overview. Um, It's, it's hard to describe because there's not much of a plot. It's basically about um, a, a family specifically a, f- a father and two daughters who move into a new house, uh, to be closer to the mom who is undergoing treatment at like a country hospital, um, in like rural Japan for some kind of unspecified, but kind of like maybe tuberculosis type illness. And it follows them as they have encounters with, um, these kind of nature spirits and in particular one like primary nature spirit who seems to be the like patron spirit of this big tree and shrine near their house and that's really the plot insofar as it as it has one it's not like it's not like oh someone's been kidnapped and we have to get it back even compared to other Miyazaki films it's a very like free-floating interesting film I guess
1: very much and I mean I I agree with what you mean like it's not I mean, but I'd say this like, I mean, yeah, like um, I'm trying to think like Frozen 2, I guess like the whole family can watch it, you know, but I'm thinking of, like, I don't know, like like Paw Patrol, the the bad fascist cartoon, but you wouldn't uh. say Paw Patrol family friendly, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and going back to that, I appreciate Totoro because, yes, it's very much aimed at children, but so is Paw Patrol and that's fascist garbage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes. We've, we've talked about the the paramilitary uh uh lack of of oversight in adventure bay previously on this show although i did only just recently see that that irish times article which i was like thank god someone else had the same take on this ridiculous show and thankfully we've 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 grown out of that show and i intend to not allow our younger daughter to grow back into it but Yes. Good,
1: good, good parenting
0: there. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's not that, as as, as you say, it's something else, in t- it's almost like a children's book in movie form.
1: I like that, I like that a lot. No, um, no, that's a good way to put it. Like, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of books you read as a kid, you know, like Goodnight Moon, and same thing, there's no linear plot, it's just Good Night to all things in your room. And it's so like, yeah, quiet. And it's, it's kind of wonderful. And I think um, media nowadays kind of has this insistence that kids have no attention span and you have to do everything in your power to hold down their attention and uh, – you know, Miyazaki in this way almost kind of has like a lot of faith in his very little viewership, yes. which is funny because Miyazaki has no faith in adults at all. You know, um, <laughs> he appears to he appears to be like, no, no, the small child can just watch the scene of a little child on Totoro's giant stomach as he sleeps and just watch her go up and down on his gigantic belly. You know, like he trusts the child to be engaged by this.
0: It, the, yeah, the, the notion of kind of trusting the child audience, I think, is really a, a very poignant one because um, I think a lot of people going into this would be surprised when they discover that Totoro doesn't actually show up until like maybe a half hour into the movie. And he's really not even in the movie all that much. There's way more scenes of just like these two girls who seem to be maybe like nine and three or nine and five or something like that. Um, just, just kind of like go, going about their lives and being kids. They, they go to school, they, they, you know, have an argument. One of them runs away. They, you know, clean out the house. Ha- There's like, it's not like a, it's not what you're imagining when someone says, that, oh, it's these like two girls and they meet this like this nature spirit. It's not like he's constantly there. He's really there for like maybe three scenes out of the entire running time. So, yeah, it has a lot of faith in the kids to be interested in what's going on, or I guess almost like it has faith in itself to be entertaining. Um, and I have to say, uh, from the very first time that we watched it, our our older daughter was like enraptured. Even like the early scenes where they're just kind of like riding up to the house in a car and meeting people and like exploring this house. And I think it's in part because all those things to a child are very interesting. Like to an adult, you're like, ah, I've moved. This is whatever, who cares? But like <laughs> to a kid, it's like, oh wow, like look at this stuff. It's like, it's, it's there's things are different. Like, oh, there's new rooms to go into. And like, that's totally something that kids find joy in is simple things like going into a room they've never been in before and I think the movie does a wonderful job of just like tapping into that and somehow harnessing it um, both for kids and for like adults in a way that you're like oh yeah like this feels it feels like watching it feels like being a kid kind of
1: said i love that because as an adult like i feel like i'm very cynical i don't like anything that's saccharine you know like it really just gets under my skin it feels very insincere and a lot of times it almost feels like a cheap crap you know cash grab like you're supposed to be like oh you know like this this you know this dreamworks movie oh actually it's an allegory for toxic masculinity so you (laughs) as an adult should like it i'm like no um but no this and um slightly off topic there's another wonderful animated film uh it was uh, came out in Europe um like a couple of years ago, Ernest and Celestine. And same thing. It's based off of a children's book. It's meant for children. And even as an adult, I mean, I'm not gonna be like, hey, let's all sit down and watch my neighbor Totoro, but there is there's sort of a tranquil enjoyment, even as an adult, you can really appreciate out of those kind of more quieter movies.
0: Yeah, quiet is a good Thing to call out because, and this is something that you know, no surprise. As an apparent, as a parent, I've I've come to uh, very much enjoy moments of silence in children's entertainment, um, and uh, s- periods in children's media where nothing is happening and people are just kind of like taking it in are very rare. Um, but when they occur and are used well, it's something that you generally don't see and it's immediately striking how different it is from the loud, boisterous, Paw Patrol-style children's entertainment. Um, we we did a whole episode previously uh, on the Netflix cartoon Hilda, um, which, which I would say if anyone listening who is a fan of, like, Miyazaki, um, it, you know, it's not stylistically similar, but in the way that it is paced is – very similar like there are moments where it's literally just the the main character like looking out uh, over a city from her balcony as like interesting music plays and it just kind of sits there and lets you watch it and take it in and it's not like on to the next thing uh you know here comes the bad guy He's doing this thing oh no someone's been kidnapped oh no now, now we have powers like it has the confidence in itself and in its audience to be like we can pause and you can think about what's going on and have this inform this this impression of it. So um I wanted to talk a little bit about uh Totoro himself um because uh or I guess I guess there are I guess there are multiple Totoros. There there seems to be both uh Totoro who is a Totoro and then there are like little Totoros um who kind of follow him around and seem to be like attendant Totoros. So he's a big kind of like Cat, mouse, beaver, raccoon sort of rabbit creature, I guess. He's got a big mouth. Um, he's very loud and, and in a way that I think kids don't pick up on, but adults probably do, is like vaguely threatening at times. Like when he gets excited, he yells in a very like non-children's cartoon Wade. I think I personally was kind of taken aback by, but it's very much part of the the, the charm of it, I think, is, is that little hint of, like, danger when the kids first, first meet him. Because you're not really sure what's, like, what's going to happen or what he's going to be like.
1: No, I, I like that, though. And I like, when I look back as a kid, like, movies that... I don't know if they're good, but movies that stuck with me were ones where there was just a little bit of like danger, just a little bit of uncertainty, you know, Um, like I watched a lot of Don Bluth movies, which are definitely a lot more kind of kids in peril than Totoro is. Um, But I, I noticed this a lot as adults, we love to be like, oh man, I can't believe like how dark that thing is. I was as a kid I watched actually was. And it's not that dark. It's just like, we're very shocked at the idea of kind of kids handling like scary situations or taking it in. And it it depends, it kind of depends on what the kid's watching or kind of the emotional sensitivity of a child. But I think many kids usually can handle that, um, and I remember as a kid being very scared by things that gave the perception like they could eat me. Like I was very scared of Jabba the Hutt as a child because he just looked like something that could <laughs> eat. Me. So I remember like being like uh, like kind of as a teen seeing photos of Totoro because he has those big teeth, he has a big mouth, and he has human teeth, and I was like, is "Totoro gonna like eat a kid," <laughs> you know? Um, but Totoro is not. He is he is a gentle giant. He is he is a loving. Um, you know, a loving and joyous, um, you know, spirit of the forest. <laughs> he does not consume it's, any children. He, he,
0: he is morphologically similar to Jabba the Hutt. Now that you mention it, they both kind of have that like flat head and very wide curvy mouth with a lot of teeth.
1: Yes. Totoro looks kind of scary, um, but he's not, but by him making him look a little scary, there's sort of a thrill and an uncertainty, I think in that, that makes the show endearing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's not a... Um, he's not a Disney companion. He is a little bit uh, uncertain. When, when you first look at him, you're not totally certain, like, what's his deal? And even, even the characters within um, the movie aren't completely sure, like, what his deal is. Like, it's not clearly established. Like, the first time that they encounter him... Um, the younger daughter, May, gets lost in kind of like a thicket and just kind of appears in his house and he's asleep. Um, and she kind of, like you said, he, he, cl- he she climbs onto his stomach and just kind of rides him up and down. Um, and then I, I think she kind of gets like led back out, back to her family. So he kind of, it's implied that like he or the spirit of the tree or the Totoro's together kind of lead her back to her family. Um, and then and then later uh, when the older daughter finally encounters him, it's it's when um, their father is we, you find out later he missed the bus but he's he's failed to show up for dinner and the, the girls kind of go looking for him and wind up waiting in the rain at a bus stop. and all of a sudden Totoro kind of shows up um, and you get this sense that like, he's, well, he's kind of unpredictable and almost, like, almost jester-like. Like he's kind of comical in, his, in the way that he misunderstands um, kind of what seems to be, like, the contrivances of the modern world. Like, he doesn't really understand what an umbrella is, but then when it's shown to him he's, like, super psyched about, you know, umbrellas <laughs> yeah. and, and, like, rain not falling in him. There's the sense that, like, to me, I guess Totoro almost represents, like, the, the unknown slash natural world to a child but it's pitched in a way that is like inherently nurturing like um you know if something bad is happening like it it almost feels like Totoro is like the embodiment of the sense that like well the world will kind of help you back like help you get back to whatever it is you you need to, to to get to get back to i guess but he is definitely like a natural figure and so as you say is like somewhat somewhat dangerous in the way that I think like a forest seems dangerous to a kid. It frankly is dangerous to, to a kid, but
1: (laughs) it is, but I agree. I I like the nurturing thing. I think, um, I, 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 there's that scene in Snow White, like where she goes to the forest and it's perceived to the forest is attacking her. And I think that's something like when you watch as a kid, like it kind of, the same going back. It like kind of fucks you up. You're like, Oh my God, this is scary. Um, and I love this idea of the forest. Like I said, being an unknown, but not necessarily like a bad or a harmful thing. Mm-hmm. And there is an innocence and a nurturing aspect to, you know, the, the nature, but going back, that's kind of peak Miyazaki in which nature is this, you know, almost like uncorrected, corruptible, you know, pure nurturing force. Um, And that's something, of course, that comes up a lot in, you know, a lot of his works.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think, I think there's a few themes that you encounter throughout uh, Miyazaki and that, you know, the the natural world is definitely one of them. Although I I would say that, you know, if you compare the natural world of My Neighbor Totoro to the natural world in Princess Mononoke, very different takes on, Mm. The nature of uh, nature. Um, but there, another thing that, you know, while we're on the topic is there is a flight sequence, which I think is another uh, theme that is clearly super important to to Miyazaki as both like a creator and a person, it seems. Uh, I know that we, we went and saw uh, The Wind Rises a few years ago when it, when it had a theatrical release. And you know, there's also like Porto Rosso, Both films that are in some way inherently about the magic of flight. And there's this lovely, really beautiful sequence in *My Neighbor Totoro*, where he rides on like a a top, I guess, and carries the the girls over like the forest and over the fields as they're trying to uh, make make seeds grow. It's such an interesting, like it it almost made me feel like I was. Seeing something that would make sense to someone with a different, like, religious or cultural background, it almost made me wonder, like, is this, like, like a specific cultural thing that I don't understand, or is it just, like, Miyazaki being, like, Miyazaki and super, super inventive? And I, I, don't, I don't have a good answer for that, and uh, m- maybe I should have done more research, and then I would, but... <laughs>
1: No, going back, I mean, I should have too. I know, like, um, in Japanese culture, there's Shintoism, and that's the belief of kind of uh, gods and everything. And so it is very nature based. But, you know, like, I'm I'm a white girl. I don't want to be like, that's a Miyazaki man. Because I don't know, maybe he was just like, I like flying. Okay.
0: There, there is definitely like a specific reference to um, when they, when, when the family goes and visits this this big old tree that seems to be where Totoro and the other Totoros live. They specifically show that there is a shrine there, and later on, they they I think that May is resting at another shrine um, out in kind of like the field. So there definitely is that that aspect of like like a specific religious experience that's part of that. but I also get the sense that that's it's it's not just like a depiction of belief. It's very much like it's it's its own thing. So I, I guess the the plot does eventually kind of come to a head where um, Mei, the younger daughter, kind of wanders away after having a fight with uh, Satsuki, the older daughter, and then it, there is, like, a couple scenes where the film actually kind of implies that the younger daughter may have drowned. It, it, interesting, this is something that, like, our kids have never picked up on. Um, but kind of as a parent, watching that scene is extremely harrowing. Because it it doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility, and there's even that scene where like they find the shoe in the drainage ditch, and they they call the older daughter to come and like try see if she can identify it, and you're like like did did they just have a kid drown in this like very like nice whimsical uh, movie? And I, I just remember being <laughs> very taken aback by that.
1: Yeah. I, I, and it sort of is something like you kind of, I think as a parent you pick up on more and um, I'll talk to people who are parents and they'll be like, they used to watch all sorts of stuff and they can't watch things now where kids are in peril, even if it's not shown, even if it's just like implied, it's just suddenly really, really hard for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've definitely talked about that. I I've specifically mentioned like the movie train spotting multiple times is something that I, I didn't, didn't make much of an impression on me with, before I was a parent, and then after I was a parent, like, like terrifying to me, and just just can't can't deal with it. So yeah, it's absolutely probably something that wouldn't wouldn't matter to a kid, especially because you know again, Totoro shows up and helps reunite them, and it's this lovely thing. It's probably worth mentioning uh, one of I guess the other lasting symbols of Studio Ghibli, which is the the cat bus, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie; it is a big cat that's also a bus. Um, it's not really explained, but it seems to follow roots of some of some sort.
1: No, no. I'm just curious, like in that, like, like town they live in, is there like a little cat root cat bus, like a route line?
0: Well, I, I mean, the, the, the cat bus does show up at, at the bus stop. So it's, you know, maybe it's like a parallel transportation network specifically for Totoro and, and other, you know, other forest spirits. I don't know. <laughs> There's some kind of like public, uh, public nature spirit infrastructure. Um, that you know, Japan has wisely uh, invested in.
1: Ah, uh, that's Japan, though, right? They always will have like amazing public transportation, yeah. like, <laughs> you know.
0: even for Totoro's, <laughs> amazingly,
1: even for whimsical woodland creature.
0: <laughs> well, it's 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 funny though. Um, mentioning the, the the cat bus reminds me of something that that and this is very specific to the the way that we watch it, which is on frankly like a a. A bootleg Studio Ghibli collection that we got off of eBay, I think, and interestingly, um, the you can tell that the the subtitles um, are like a different translation than the script that is being used by the English voice actors because um, there are slight differences throughout, especially throughout My Neighbor Totoro, um, and something that I thought was very interesting. It makes me wonder about like the localization process that that this this movie went through is um they make some of the characters seem much goofier um in the English dub than they do in k- kind of just like the subtitle uh, tra- translations specifically the the one grandmother character who shows up a couple times in in the English dub she talks a bunch about like, oh, eat these magical fruits and vegetables. They'll make you grow up strong and and fill your spirit with like good energy. And in the subtitles, there's nothing about that. She's just like, make sure you eat your veggies. And it really makes me wonder about like the, the process of adapting these films and the way that, you know, we felt compelled, as you know, an English-speaking audience, to try to translate them into something that works closer to, I guess, our own our own understanding of what what children's media could be. When frankly, it doesn't seem necessary. Like I think it functions perfectly well as kids' media without without any really like alteration, in my opinion.
1: Definitely, and uh, it's been a while, but Totoro had two dubs, and they had one that was done when Todor originally um, came to the West. And then a while ago they had a whole new one. And that's a good question. It's been a while since I watched it dub and I'd love to see which one's kind of more like faithful. Cause definitely. And that is something I think a lot of us observed. Like when we, like I said, growing up when anime was a new thing is it still very much was a cartoon. If you watch the Sailor Moon cartoon, everyone had a goofy voice. And if you watch like Dragon Ball, like it sounds completely different. Um, in like to compare it to the Japanese version. So now I wouldn't be surprised if originally when it came around, it was like, well, it's a cartoon for children. It has to sound like a Western cartoon for children, but going back, that's not trusting the audience. That's not trusting the kids. And it's like, well, they won't pay attention unless someone has a goofy voice.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is, um, you know, I I have a lot of issues with, uh, the review of, uh, Roger Ebert, but one thing he was absolutely right about was he was an early, early booster of My Neighbor Totoro, as as I recall, um, and he he really pushed that, like, this is something very special and unique and, like, should be widely seen, and he really stuck in a lot of ways, I think, with, like, the Miyazaki releases as they went on, so, you know, I, again, I disagree with him on some of his reviews, but he absolutely got that, that one right, and um yeah it you could definitely tell the the ways in which it's it was kind of nudged and massaged to make it maybe a little bit a little bit closer um to to typical western entertainment although one thing that i think you really can't change is the the way that it ends which i think um you know people who haven't really seen much Miyazaki would probably find kind of striking which is it just it just reaches a conclusion and all of a sudden like a song plays like it literally has the girls being reunited with their dad, um, and then like that—that's it. There's like a very brief montage, and a song plays, and then it ends. And and like there is no like de- like denouement or like wrap up. It just it just reaches the conclusion of the story, and that's that's all you get.
1: Yeah, no, it's very like anticlimactic comparatively. And I mean, Roger. E- says it's his this review of Totoro. He says, like, it's, it's different. It's not, oh, the adults don't believe me, so I have to go save the world myself. And he, I'm, like, kind of quoting him there. It's, yeah, just sort of like, you know, the little girl ran away, and then, you know, she, she's back, and it's, it's good, you know, and they'll probably go see their mom in the hospital. And, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, and I, I think part of that is because the, the little girl running away is not the plot of, of the movie. It's just a, one of various things that that happen.
1: It is very, like, kind of story structured. Um, there was a really good critique on the problems when they did the Hobbit adaptation. And going back, it's because um, the Hobbit books, it's not like a, a narrative. It's each chapter, Bilbo does something, you know? So when you try to put it as like a movie, it feels very off. And going back, I kind of love that the Totoro movie is just a series of events that occur.
0: That's such a good comparison to to the Hobbit movie, and and yeah, I've I've heard that criticism as well, and I it, that very much rings true. And of course, that makes me dread that you know I I I really desperately hope that that there is never any attempt to adapt this. And I I have to assume that uh, as long as Miyazaki is is around, would would not uh, permit any kind of Western adaptation or, or remake because they would totally screw that up. Absolutely, one hundred percent, and for the same reason, I think.
1: No, definitely. It would have to be big and climactic. Like, um, I don't know if Totoro would fart, but he'd be voiced by, um, <laughs> I don't know, like like Adam Driver or something, you know, <laughs> I don't know. And then like, like big Totoro and all the little Totoros would like have a dance number at the end or something, you know, and there'd be like a record scratch and Totoro would just say in Adam Driver's deep voice, awkward, <laughs> like, you know. Uh. No, You're bless, bless
0: physical a... pain. Right
1: <laughs> bless no, bless bless Miyazaki's um angry, bitter heart, you know, he will never let anyone touch touch his movies.
0: Um so I mean speaking of his his angry and, and bitter heart, um I read something that about what something he's uh, said about the film uh, I think in response to a, an interview question where he was asked like do the girls have more adventures with Totoro after the movie ends. Um, and his response in some way like is deeply sad, but also kind of enhanced my appreciation of the film where he basically said like, n- no, they never see Totoro again because they are becoming adults or they are growing up and they are, you know, only children can see Totoro. They, they ex- explicitly say that in, in the film. Um, and, like, part of this experience that they've gone through has, like, irrevocably altered them and their perception of the world. And, like, that's that's it. Totoro is still around, uh, but they can't see him anymore because they have grown out of it. And I remember, like, that, like, <laughs> it's, it's both, like, exactly correct and deeply sad to me.
1: But I, I appreciate that, though. I appreciate that, um, like I said, it's, it's, this is kind of a one-shot. It's this, these girls and this thing that happened, you know, when they moved into their new home, and that's kind of it. Um, but a lot of Miyazaki films do kind of enjoy talking about kind of childhood and also the end of childhood. And um, that's a big thing people point out in Kiki's delivery service, which is, um, in the beginning, her little cat talks. And as Kiki gets older struggles with her magic and being a witch and working in the gig economy, um, the cat stops talking. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a big indicator of, like, kind of, you know, Kiki leaving her adolescence.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the cat stop talking because she lost confidence in herself and, like, started losing her her magic? Because I I think he starts talking again at, at the end, I thought.
1: I'm trying to remember. No, I, oh man, it's been a while since I watched it. See, I was like prepared for Totoro and Mononoke. <laughs> I, know, okay,
0: I <laughs> Sorry, the and should, should just uh, find no, that one on you. <laughs> but,
1: no, it's all good. But I mean, definitely like these are, are themes he likes to do. I think a lot of. Kids' stories, kind of written by kind of more thoughtful adults, tend to be like, "What's it mean to be a child, and what's it mean to enter adulthood, and what are these key moments that mean that you're no longer a
0: child?" Totally, and you know, I, I mean, you you mentioned Kiki's uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, and uh, the the instigating action of that film, insofar as there is one, is that she's she's now um, I think I think I forget if she's eleven or thirteen, but she's at a certain age where witches have to leave home and go out and find their own town to be the witch of. Um, so there is that, that kind of like specific gate like your childhood is done, now go out and, and do stuff. And you know, the, the childhoods of Mei and, and Satsuki also ended. And so now they are, you know, they don't need Totoro anymore. Um, the, the the last thing I'll say about uh, Totoro is that I think the depiction of nature um, in this film is a really good way to introduce children to like the way in which nature is kind of magical, um, because you know, our our daughter has kind of grown grown out of it as she's developed a more like reason based understanding of the world. But when she was first, you know, watching this movie, the next time that we went to a forest, she asked like, "Is this a Totoro forest?" Uh. <laughs> and we were walking around, and I was like, "I don't know." Like it. It, it could be, you know, I, I and and that was like a thing where like we drive past the forest and she'd look out the window and see it and be like, "That's a Totoro forest, like hundred percent." That forest has has Totoros.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that, though. I love that.
0: <laughs> you know, something we always like to talk about is what what can kids learn from this movie, and I think uh the answer to that is like too complex to do in like you know thirty seconds. But I think like appreciation of nature, um, like understanding maybe a little bit of like the the both the wonders and, da- and dangers of doing stuff on your own. Um, there's a lot of like interesting experiences that kind of shows the kids going through, like a parent being sick, moving into a new house, um, you know, going to a new school, making friends. Like it really manages in a short running time to capture like an an awful lot about. Um, Childhood, and I, I know that that you you are not a parent, but um, you know you work with kids. So, is do you, do you have have any thoughts on like specific stuff that you know maybe kids could could get from from watching this?
1: Well, they've done they've done a lot of studies, and you might have seen this too as a parent. They are they try to make these big pushes now for kids to go outside and play, and mm-hmm. that's something. Um, and it's not even just go outside, like in your street or in your backyard, but like actually like in nature. And that's something, of course, that's drastically changed. We rely, I think, a lot on media to entertain our kids. Um, we live in either urban or suburban areas. We don't have time to drive to the woods and go on hikes. Um, you know, there's obviously like a big fear of like, oh, you know, like my kid can't go into the woods. You know, what if they get adu- abducted, you know, um, and you'll read, and there's all these books now, um, that are very much like, let your kid go outside and they do studies and kids who actually like go outside and hang out in nature, you know, have better cognitive abilities and they're less prone to like, I don't know, anxiety and all the, they do, you know, better at focusing and things like that. Um, I don't know the true causes of like why kids don't go outside, you know, it's, I'd say capitalism, um. <laughs> Um, you know, and I Probably. don't know what your results are <laughs> for kids who, yeah for kids who do play outside, but I know there are definitely like movements and kind of parenting communities to encourage that. Um, I grew up in a very rural area and for better or worse, my mom would like kick me outside and me and the dog would just sort of aimlessly wander around for a few hours. I never saw a Totoro though. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't think <laughs> it turned out too good despite of this. Um, I'm just saying what they suggest. So I think anything that kind of encourages a kid, you know, to kind of experience, kind of have that active imagination and ask, is this a Totoro forest? I, I think is a good thing.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and like, I, I would say to anyone listening, like there probably are um, small parks that like you don't need to go to like a giant national park to have like a pretty cool nature experience, especially for a kid who is not, you know, cynical and isn't like, Oh, this is a teeny little forest, whatever, who cares? Like pretty much any forest to a child is, is, is a big forest. Um, and there's probably like nature education centers near you almost no matter where you are in the country. So, you know, if it's a takeaway from, from the the wrap up of, of our Totoro discussion i would say go avail yourself of them uh, get thee to the forest and let your kids run around in them and pick up sticks and fall down and you know you're probably going to find a tick on them and you'll be really upset and it's going to suck and <laughs> they'll get upset but whatever you'll get through it it's fine you know totoro's got your back <laughs> so um moving along uh we, we kind of towards the end there we mentioned um a, a theme that i think will be very resonant uh, in setting up uh Princess Mononoke which is that the 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 departure from childhood uh which plays a, a a big role in the instigation of uh Mononoke um but uh I know Emma that you have said this is this is your your favorite Miyazaki film and it sounded like like one of your favorite anime is in in general so do you want to take a crack at uh summarizing the the plot or or events of Princess Mononoke
1: Sure sure so, Prince of Monoke takes place a um, very long time ago in Japan. And it, um, it the story begins with um, a young man who's now part of a... Now, basically, an extinct uh, group of, of indigenous people, um, Ashitaka. And he's just living his life. And one day, a um, boar god that has been cursed comes into the village and wrecks havoc. And Ashitaka manages to take down the boar... But, um, in the process, becomes cursed himself. he then is exiled from the village, and him and his um it's I think it's an antelope or an elk I, elk, I don't know he has like a little a red stock buddy, yes, yes, and they uh, they head off to try to find the cause for what cursed the boar and um basically to see you know what he can do to like stop the the curse for himself and he heads off and along the way, he ends up encountering um Essentially, um, essentially a a steel mill, to put it really simply, Um, being run by this woman who has done. She's a job creator, Lady (laughs) Aboshi. Lady Aboshi (laughs) is a job creator. She's a girl boss. (laughs) She is a girl boss. She is a dog creator. Um, yes, queen. Um, but in the process of all this, she is also wrecking unspeakable havoc among the forest and has caused the wrath of the god, including the wolf gods, who have adopted a human child. Um, the princess said called Prince Mononoke of the series. Um, who's not called Prince Mononoke? That's like calling the kid on the bike Akira. It's not. Um, her name is Stan. <laughs> and um it is all about essentially just ashitaka trying to as they say multiple times see with eyes unclouded by hate and is amazing like you're absolutely correct it's not just one of my favorite animes probably like one of my favorite movies
0: it's it's so 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 good and it had been a long time since i watched it um and i was really really struck by just how good and propulsive and meaningful and nuanced everything is and especially i think when you look at like when it came out it's it's a obvious why it was like pretty i i would say probably the the first anime feature film to really really blow up in the us like i'm pretty sure i saw this in in the theaters with my with with my best friend kevin when i must have been I think it was, like, 96, 97, maybe, when it came out. So I would have been, like, 14-ish, 15-ish. Um, and, like, it's so subtle and nuanced in its portrayals of everything from, like, gender roles to industrialization to nature to um, uh, militarization and, like, imperialism. Like, there's so much going on um, in, in this film that it's it's, like, kind of staggering that, like... It it is as good and as coherent as it is, I think, because it takes on so much.
1: It really does. And I love the nuance to it because I think the plot of basically this, you know, this this woman is destroying the forest is I think something... Um, I think going back as like kids, you kind of start to understand essentially like kind of the the evil that men do. And you understand like cutting down forests is bad and hurting animals is bad. And it would have been very, very easy to make her a very one dimensional villain. And what I love is I say that kind of jokingly, she's a girl boss job creator, but a very important part is when Ashitaka goes into that community, he meets all these people and they're like, she saved our lives. She gave us a place to stay. You know, she is wonderful. She has done so much good for these people and yet what she's doing is wrong and um the, the the show the the movie does not flinch from this what she's doing is wrong and yet there is a sympathy to her and maybe even an admiration you know when you understand why she's doing these things she's still wrong but um she's very much like i said a nuanced character along with you know i think the entire cast
0: yeah it's 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 interesting um The way that Lady Eboshi is is portrayed because she's neither a villain, but nor is she like just misunderstood. Like there are aspects of her that are explicitly uh, villainous. And, you know, but before we get too far into this, I I should probably say, you know, if uh, My Neighbor Totoro is probably the the youngest kid uh, friendly Miyazaki film. Um, this is probably one of the the least young kid friendly ones and i I would say that this is not it's not like a super gory um film. There are some moments of of gore and and somewhat like uh very visceral depictions of the the weird black ooze that shows up in a lot of Miyazaki films uh but it is it is I would say it is not like a young kid appropriate. Um, film for the most part, but more because it is like intense. Like I I honestly think that a young kid would just have a lot of trouble um, following this, not for a variety of reasons, not the least of which uh, because, you know, the, the, the plot is, I I honestly, when I first saw this, when I was like 13 or 14, I struggled to follow the plot to an extent because um, it's, it's not always clear why people are doing the things That they're doing like it's not totally clear how Ashitaka um, finds his way to the town. Um, uh, And it's not totally clear like why Lady Eboshi is doing some of the things um, that she's doing. Uh, Like the the, the part about her character that really strikes me is um, towards the end where um, they have tried and failed to to kill uh, the forest spirit. She just like takes out a sword and is like, well, I'm going to do it then, like, even though, like, it doesn't seem to matter almost at, at that point. And, and that's what I was referring to when I said, like, there are moments when she seems like explicitly villainous, very complex character.
1: Oh, no, I love that scene. And she's like, this is how you kill a god. And that's a great scene. You know? You know, it's terrifying, and um, but it's so good. And she's just a character. I think, like I said, there's just such a confidence, not in her. Obviously, she's a confident character, but just a confidence in just writing these characters that Miyazaki expects you, I think, to understand where everyone's coming from, even if there are people who are doing, you know, wrong or even abhorrent things.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, the, the overall film, I would say, requires a lot of faith in the audience to just kind of get what's going on from the from the kind of nebulous way that the curse seems to work where it's it's clearly like the curse of hatred in at some level or vengeance or but also like a curse of modernity almost like there's there's some sense that you know um being shot by these firearms has cursed these gods uh, and turned them into monsters and then exposure to their hatred has cursed ashitaka and even though like Lydia Boshi um, and uh, the, the, the guy who's voiced by Billy Bob Thornton in the English dub whose name escapes me now um, even though they are not cursed they themselves also seem to kind of bear some aspect of this curse in the way that it's it's driving them to do these, these frankly, like at face value, bizarre things. Like, as you say, trying to kill a God to so that they can, you know, uh, expand their ironworks. Like it's a very, it's worth pointing out also, you know, that it's a very critical of capitalism, although not explicitly film. Like it just kind of, like it sets a table and leaves you, I think, to arrive at the conclusions that like, oh, like they're focused on expansion and kind of growing their 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 business in in, in a way, and they're destroying the natural environment, and it's driving this, like, greater imperialist cause, and now they're coming into conflict, and the people suffering are, you know, frankly, indigenous peoples uh, and the environment.
1: Yeah, and um, what I think is interesting is this is something um, you see a lot of, even in today's, like, kind of – ecosystems and a lot of today's like problems with habitat loss, which is you have, I'll give you an example. This is a big one. I talk about in my job a lot, uh, palm oil and palm oil is essentially uh, devastated, absolutely devastated um, certain ecosystems. Orangutans like might go extinct within like this generation of like orangutan offspring. There's currently maybe about like three 400 um, tigers left on the island of Sumatra that means like people in Texas have more tigers currently than the native their native island does and yet if you said okay no more palm oil um, you get people who work in those areas who are dependent upon making those plantations and growing that agriculture. Um, and Jane Goodall had this wonderful quote, and I love it because it's very easy to be like, oh, you know, like, teachers like are bastards. Um, and Jane Goodall had this great quote, and she said, um, a man will cut down the last tree in the world if it means he can feed his family. And going back, this is a lot of kind of the the, the conflicts that are you know, that Ashitaka um, and San, you know, clash with Lady Eboshi. Yes, yeah, she's decimating the forest. And yet, you know, she's taking in, you know, lepers. She's taking in prostitutes, you know. She's taking in people, like I said earlier, would literally starve and die. Like, mm-hmm. what do you do? Yes, it's, it's wrong to decimate ecosystems. What's the alternative, though? What, what can you do? Can there be an alternative? What's it come down to?
0: It's it's funny because you know to to jump right to the end the the movie doesn't really answer that question um it it kind of just ends with uh, Lady Eboshi saying well we're going to re, you know a- after their their steelworks has been destroyed by not exactly by a vengeful god just kind of by their their own like meddling I would say it's just kind of like a, like a random ca- you know casualty of having upset the balance of nature as, as one does. Uh, they basically just say, well, we're going to rebuild, but we're going to do it better this time. But they, it's, they don't seem to have actually, we're going right- to
1: have, ethi- <laughs> ethi- we're going to have ethical banks, <laughs> we're
0: yeah, have yeah. ethical,
1: ethical steel mills this time. You guys
0: compassionate uh, capitalism. We, we won't actually <laughs> kill the literal um, spirit of, of the forest.
1: We're going to teach them to code. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's I, I I do want to dig a little bit um, more deeply into kind of the depiction of, of nature um, in Mononoke, especially how it contrasts with the way it's depicted in, in Totoro. Whereas I think in, in Totoro, it's this like very friendly, nurturing, like, don't worry, nature's got your back. It's everywhere all the time. Since um, there are moments of that in Mononoke, like there's a specific scene where the, um, Oh gosh! I the the little like rattlehead, um, forest yes, children yes. things. Yes,
1: yes, I don't remember their names. Off the top of my head. K-
0: yes. K- Kodomo. Something yes. like that. Um, where they lead uh, Ashitaka and a a wounded iron worker guy, um, kind of through the forest to safety. But uh, in Mononoke, um, nature is personified in these incredibly violent, uh, threatening terrifying gods and a a deeply foreboding and mysterious uh forest. And it's a to- it's such such a 180, I think. Um and I am I'm, I'm trying to think of like the other, you know, depictions of nature in Miyazaki films like, you know, Nausicaa is is a big one obviously, but I, I kind of feel like this is perhaps the most the most threatening that that nature gets even compared to like Nausicaa where there are these giant bug war machine things that are kind of enacting nature's vengeance on people. I, I almost feel like it's even more uh, threatening and aggressive in, in, in uh, Mononoke.
1: No, I agree. And like thing Nausicaa is post-apocalyptic. So it's just like, Oh, well, you know, this just happens after the world's destroyed and something I kind of love. And I feel about Mononoke's kind of, you know, version of nature. And like I said, uh, Mononoke takes place in like, I can't remember the date. I want it to like the 1300s or something. It's, it's an actual like era that occurred. I'll, I cannot remember it off the top of my head. I looked it up once and I completely forgot. Um, but going back, um, this is, this is forest that is untouched. It's primal, if mm-hmm. you will. It's something that has been here since the dawn of time. It is erupted by man. And, um, and it pushes back when it feels threatened or corrupted. And it pushes back of this terrifying anger. Like, like, you know, I mean, I guess a pun intended, like a force, if you will.
0: Yeah, totally. and, and, um, it is extremely unpredictable, even when you're not outright antagonizing it like there's a few moments uh from um Sen's mother, whose name uh, escapes me the the wolf goddess um where she basically just says to Ashitaka, like, if I see you again, um, I'm going to kill you. Or there's a part where she says, like, I was hoping that you you made a noise in your sleep because I would have killed you. And it's it's just, like, very, like, nonchalantly, like, yeah, I'm nature. Um, I'm going to destroy you because that's just, like, what I do. I don't care. Uh, I don't care at all about you being a person. I don't even necessarily care about whether you are, like, mean well or mean ill of You know me and my pack it's just kind of this is my nature and uh, I don't care about you at all
1: I always love um I always liked this quote from Werner Herzog he says it uh during Grizzly Man he says uh, when I look at the bear I don't see good or evil I just see the cruel indifference of nature and um I feel like that kind of sums up you know kind of the the spirits and the gods of Mononoke they're not inherently evil, obviously. I mean, Morrow, the, the wolf goddess, her whole story is, oh, like, you know, some people like ran away from me and they threw their baby at me and hopes they'd eat it. And I just raised the baby. That's right. Um, yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's not good or evil. It's just, like I said, this, this indifference is what nature is. She, I, I think she kind of processes things on, I think, emotions and wavelengths kind of beyond how humans perceive the world.
0: Yeah, totally, and um, it's interesting that a- at the same time, each of the different kind of a- animal gods, their their contingent um, animal c- clans, I guess, are are all kind of equally indifferent, but in in different ways. Whereas you get um, you get the the kind of apes who I believe say that they they want to to eat the men and become like them. Uh, then you have, like, the Boers who are kind of, like, explicitly on the warpath and say the, the, that, like, the, we are great warriors, we're going to destroy them.
1: 30, the, the 30 to 50 feral hawks.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's more like, to 500 uh, feral hawks and, and gods, uh, which, which actually is one of the um, – in, in rewatching this, I was really struck that some of the most shocking violence, um, you know, is not – to me, actually, the the scene that we already discussed of the the head getting shot off, which you like you see, albeit from afar, um, but there's a scene where the boar spirits, uh, led by the, the boar god, charge at the the kind of the, the human army, um, unwittingly going over top of explosives, and there's a very like World War One imagery esque um, scene of these hundreds of boars. Being blown up by these these giant explosions and just like ripped to shreds, and it is a very shocking image of modernity that, in my opinion, is far more brutal than anything that we see um, the the animal spirits uh, doing. And they, they are themselves like fairly brutal. So I thought it was interesting that like you know, as always, uh, the the ultimate monster is not the monsters, but but man is the real monster. <gasps> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um I, I, I wanted to ask what your interpretation of um Ashitaka being sent to see with his eyes unclouded by by hate was. Because on the one hand, uh, you know, he, he is explicitly cursed with this apparently hate-based curse. So it's an interesting it's an interesting way to to position that when he seems to be the one who should be the most clouded. So I I was curious of, of how you saw that that line.
1: Um Like, you know what? I think about that a lot because you're right. Like, I mean, one, the curse kind of thrives on hate. And two, if anything, like, if anyone should be mad or vengeful, it should be Ashtaka, who has done literally nothing wrong. Like, he's been cursed because he had the audacity to try to defend his village. His entire future is destroyed. The people are like, you can't come back. You've been, you've Mm -hmm. been exiled. Um, And yet this is someone who I think to an extent, you know, um, I think at the core, I mean, he's just a pure person. And I think, and you kind of see that with, you know, um, when San and Lady Eboshi have their conflict and, you know, he... He gets her out of there and he's just very stoic in that moment Um, and not in kind of a, a macho way. Just someone I think who is, I think, to an extent, pragmatic, someone who I think is level headed, someone who's objective. And I think he's someone who isn't letting like his emotions about what's happened to him really Sway him how it feels. I think he does. He understands Lady boshi is wrong not because of what's happened to him, but because of what he's seeing and what he's witnessing.
0: It's that I think. I think a lot of what you just said rings true. Um, and the thing that you mentioned that jumps out at me is pointing out that he doesn't do these things in a macho way. And in, in actuality, he explicitly um, dismantles that notion and and pushes back against it in a way that even very few of the other characters in the movie. Do he actively resists, um, you know, using his curse, which, to be clear, also basically gives him like superpowers. Effectively, like it's made him like su- super strong, and uh, it seems like he seems like he was pretty capable to begin with, but he's become like a terminator almost. And there's a there's a scene early on where he does this this terrible sudden violence, and afterwards he explicitly says like uh, I I shouldn't have done that like two people are, are dead because of me um and it's such an interesting thing to have occur because even in the moment like the people he like he kills are very clearly like uh, going to do violence on like innocent peasants but at the same time he's just weighed by like the cost of his actions and throughout the film you you see like the curse almost animating his his body by itself, uh, like I, I think Lady Eboshi even remarks at one point, like it looks like your hand wants to kill me, um, and he actively fights against it, which really you can't say about anyone else uh, in in the film, where like they have all kind of given themselves over to whatever their their motivating instinct is, whereas Ashitake is kind of like pumping the brakes and it's like, wait, 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 wait. like like we shouldn't. This this seems like. The most obvious way to resolve these things, and you know, given that I am like a supernatural terminator now, uh, I like I probably could. Um, he actively resists it and says, "Like, no, no, like, there's a different way of doing this." Although, again, what exactly that different way is never really made clear.
1: It isn't, but the point of Prince Monoka is to think, bring light to these things. It's not about a conclusion. It's about the journey, you know, Ashitaka takes and the situations you know he is faced with and how he handles them i don't and i mean and i say that because going back i don't think there is an easy answer you know um and i think it would be the movie like i said is just so honest in its conflicts it wouldn't be fair for there to be an easy answer it wouldn't be fair for like a little like ending credits of like the the boar is all helping lady of oshi rebuild the, <laughs> the settlements you know together or something it wouldn't be fair and i think that's why you don't see that conflict it's yeah and i'm sure if you ask like you know miyazaki like for some authorial intent like well what really happened i don't think it'd be like totoro where he gave an answer i think he'd refuse or if he did it'd be a very nihilistic one <laughs>
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I think that to some extent, the the answer about what, what happens next is kind of contained w- within the text, I, I believe, like, there's a lot of finality to the events of the film, like they say that, you know, things can never go back to the way that they were, no matter what happens, like the, 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 the god animals will die off, and they will go back to just being dumb beasts, like, basically, that's going to happen, humans are going to take over. Um, you know, Ashitaka cannot return home. He is not going back. They're not going back to the way things were. I think they even at the end explicitly say, like, um, the like the, the spirit of the forest is not going to manifest ever again the way that he had been. Like that that era of this forest having its own spirit is is basically like done
1: the spirits aren't going to come back before us won't be restored ashaka can never come home things have changed you know for the better or worse like probably the worst you know but that's not really what's important the important part is how do you move on from that
0: yeah and and it is um one of the things that i do like is uh the oh gosh again the the like imperial ninja spy monk Guy, I I totally don't know what what his his name is, or even what exactly he's like his his job is. He seems to work for um like the the emperor or the or the shogunate in in some way, like some kind of an, an operative. I don't know.
1: He he does, and that was something going back to things you missed, and that was something I missed. I think like a lot of the time, and I watched this until and and I was like, oh, oh, now I feel bad not knowing the monk's name. I'm gonna look gonna look dude up. Uh, all right. Uh, my man's name was Gigo. Um,
0: And he he says something uh, like at the very end of the film where he's kind of he's kind of walked away from it all. And he says something to the effect of like, "Ah, oh, well, like like people are stupid. Um, seems to be his like nihilistic, like laughing it off summation, which which seems like kind of like double handed given that like. He he's, he was kind of being pretty stupid too for the plot of the film. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say like you know like he he plays a lot of a part in that. He, he's a Weasley little. He definitely you know is kind of playing some 3D chess there. You know,
0: it's it's I think specifically like he is dastardly to everyone. Basically, like he kind of manipulates Ashitaka into um, you know into like helping helping find. The forest spirit, and then he tries, uh, seemingly, to take over Iron Town from Lady Eboshi. Once they're out, and then gets seems to get beaten back um, by uh, the like kick ass former prostitutes who who now like work in the forges and are super sassy to everyone and like flirt openly uh, with uh, with like Ashitake in like like a a very cute way, but also like a very overt way, um, which which I, I thought was a very like. Um nuanced portrayal of like gender roles. And the circle back actually to something that you mentioned earlier um, about like the complexity of Lady Eboshi. She's not just giving these former prostitutes jobs. She's explicitly like buying out their contracts and freeing them, basically. So she's not just like accepting people, she's also like actively trying to do good in the world. Even though, as we kind of said, she's not like a she's not just an anti-hero. She's kind of like the anti-hero slash villain slash antagonist slash hapless agent of capitalism slash girl boss.
1: I say this. I feel like um while like I said um Prince Monoke is my favorite Miyazaki movie. I also feel like Prince Monoke is Miyazaki's most nihilistic movie. Um I my sister never got into anime the way I did, um, but she loves prince monoke and a few years ago uh she was visiting me and we ended up watching it and i was telling her that thing, you know like oh like you know miyazaki you know is uh you know misanthropist you know he hates people and my sister who you know she doesn't really know like those memes the anime was a mistake thing anything like that and she looked at me and she said well duh you can't make a movie like prince monoke if you like people." And I always think about that. I like, I, I always, now I think of Mononoke, okay, I think about that because uh, I feel like she is completely right.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, I, I mean, the, the fact that it is explicitly set in the past actually really does tell you exactly what happens, which is the here and now happens. Humans over on everything with our technology and industry and the forests are no longer magical and exist in like reduced forms of themselves. So I, I guess it's it's interesting that it seems to explicitly take place in our world because then yeah, we, we know exactly what happens and it's certainly not a very positive uh, view on humanity's mm-hmm. role in in the world or in nature in in particular. So uh, closing thoughts on Mononoke and or Miyazaki in, in general.
1: Um Miyazaki, I think, like I said, really good wonderful stuff that being said as much as i think his stuff is critically acclaimed it is aimed at children or families and i say this though like if you're just you know you have kids or you are just interested in miyazaki stuff it's all good to watch but going back if you just want to see just fantastic anime animation Cinema. I feel like I say this every time on Struggle Session when we talk about like a good anime. I always say that. Um, Just, I highly, highly, highly recommend Prince Mononoke. It is just absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm just glad it exists.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would, I would echo a lot of that. And I I think there's a reason that it blew up to the to the extent that it did. As like we've said a couple times, like the the first real like anime feature to totally blow up in the United States to the point that like people were talking about it. it was getting mass coverage. Like everybody knew that it existed. And it's not just the fact that it had these like big celebrity voices. Um, we already mentioned, uh, Billy Bob Thornton and, uh, uh God, what's her name? Uh, Jillian Anderson doesn't, an, does an amazing job as a Moro. Um, I, I looked up who, who, who Ashitaka was and I've, I've already forgotten. Um, it doesn't
1: it's, it's billy it's billy kudrip who um i think for the most part he's mostly a stage actor the big thing i always kind of was like oh that guy um he was dr manhattan in the uh, the live action of uh, the zack schneider watchmen oh, the that's cinema so funny. One. yeah
0: i literally <laughs> just watched that the the other night well he's not he's not dr manhattan here if anything he is the exact opposite he's like dr human <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah like you you can tell why it blew up and it is i, I think as you say like Especially if it is it is family entertainment to an extent, I would say it's a bit edgier than what we in the US would consider to be family, family entertainment. But at the same time, it is nowhere near like the it is it is not like extreme media. It's it's got an edge to it. But you know, I, I think that like a young teenager could could definitely watch this, and then would wind up probably getting in into anime, and then becoming a weird person on the internet who goes on podcasts and talks about it too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hooray! Uh,
0: well, uh, I think that about wraps it up uh, for our discussion. Emma, where can people find you out there on the great internet?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Hyenas and gin, all one word. The animal the and and then gin like the alcohol and then also please listen to me on struggle session i am the anime correspondent sometimes if i whine enough as it lets me come in and talk about other things too um support us on patreon uh yay
0: <laughs> yes you absolutely should check out S- circle session and you should absolutely support them on patreon because then you can check out the episode that that i did as well which was on elevated horror, quote, unquote. And um, just uh, a shout out to your work on Struggle Session. Um, I remember uh, you did an episode on uh, Vampire Hunter D that I was a big, big fan of. And I remember specifically listening to that uh, just after our second daughter was born and I was like driving home to get like the bag of baby stuff that we had left at the house. Uh, it's, it's great content. Uh, and you, you, you all do a good job and you especially do a good job breaking down the anime. So definitely check that out.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you're very welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. I hope you will come back at some point and talk about some 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 other anime when I have managed to trick uh, our other kids into watching.
1: Absolutely. This was an absolute pleasure to be on. Thank you so, so much.
0: Thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight, and uh, have a good one. Cheers.